Father, that is our prayer that we surrender everything to you today. And Lord, may this be realized in the way in which we sing and pray, and especially in the way in which we listen to you, to your word, and carry it out in our lives. Lord, that is what we intend to do right now. You created this early on in the life of your people, even in the Old Testament. You created this time to gather and to listen to your word taught and applied. And so, Lord, we pray that you would apply these things by your spirit to our lives. Call us to obey you. For those who don't know you, we ask you to call them into a relationship with you, your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Spirit. And for those of us who are believers, we pray that you would call us to greater fellowship, call us to greater Christ-likeness. Help us understand your Word and live these things out in a way that would glorify you. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it's a blessing to be back with you and to fellowship and to worship with you and to open God's Word together. I trust you have been blessed already with song and prayer and scripture reading. Uh, you know, I love worshiping abroad with the saints, uh, but there's no place like church home. Church home is where the heart is. And uh, I was so excited to get back and uh, be with you again this week. We're in Matthew 26. You can turn there. In a moment, I'm going to read our passage for the day. And we're going to study this. Today, we're going to study the story and events of the last Passover. This is a story that is, represents a truly monumental time. If you think about it, some 1,500 years of this ritual, year after year, this same process, the same food, the same memorializing, the same words, the same scriptures and passages over and over again, some 1,500 times. It happened all throughout Israel's history, with few exceptions. It happened year after year. They did this, even when there was turmoil, enslavement, war, victory, peace. There was one thing you could be certain of, and that is on the 15th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, the first day of spring, or Aviv, you and your family would gather around the table, hopefully in Jerusalem, at any, at any rate, you'd gather around your table after sunset for the Seder dinner of Passover. Jesus, who, of course, perfectly obeyed and followed the law, would have observed Passover every year in his life up to this point. In fact, the only vignette that we have in Jesus' childhood after his birth was when his family made that annual trip to Jerusalem, that pilgrimage for Passover. So every year as a child and then every year as a teenager and every year as a carpenter, as an adult, and then even every year as a rabbi, Messiah, he had celebrated Passover. And you think about it, perhaps two, maybe even three times with his disciples in the three years before this, he would have celebrated Passover with his men. Now here in this passage, when Jesus transformed the Passover to the Lord's table, we need to be clear about something, and that is this, that the basic meaning did not change. The fundamental idea of union with God, union with one another, communion with God, and communion with one another through the blood of the atoning Lamb 
That message did not change. Union and communion is what I've actually titled this sermon because that's the message of Passover, and indeed, that is the message of the Lord's table. The mode changed, the elements evolved, things were replaced with something more repeatable across the world. The sacrificial lamb is still present if in spirit. Union with God to man established by the sacrificial lamb are still present. The joy and fellowship and love and community with one another, that's still present, established by the lamb. The differences are related to what the writer of Hebrews called, quote, the better and new covenant established in Christ. But the basic meaning is the same, union and communion. This is why I believe God orchestrated that Judas' betrayer, uh, Judas' betrayal be revealed in the time of Passover and Lord's table. He had rejected the Son of God. He rejected the sacrificial lamb, God's salvation. So there was no union with God. And without union with God, he had no fellowship with God and no fellowship with God's people. So there was no communion. It was impossible for him to authentically celebrate with the other believers around the table. He was a wedding crasher. He was a rebellious servant, a foolish householder, to use the illustrations of the Olivet Discourse. He was a goat, not a sheep. He was not clothed properly in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, not covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so at this moment, he was outed as an imposter, and he departed. John tells us even at that moment is when Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas immediately left, and that was when Jesus established the ordinance of communion or the Lord's table. Well, Let's read Matthew's account, and then we're going to study this today. Your Bibles are open to Matthew 26. Let me read 17 to 29. This is Thursday, Thursday evening. That was the very evening that Jesus would be arrested, tried all throughout the night. The next morning, He would be hung on a cross. Verse 17 of Matthew 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it 
new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Across the United States, there are certain families who, like most in our nation, will soon gather to celebrate Thanksgiving. And these particular families, before their meal, will sing a song to the tune of the doxology entitled, Be Present at Our Table, Lord. In fact, if you were to come to my home, or any of my siblings' home, or any of my cousins' homes, you would hear us belting out that first verse of, Be Present at Our Table, Lord. I understand that uh, my grandfather was taught this hymn by a visiting singing evangelist, a guy by the name of Warren Angel. He was taught this hymn in the 1940s, and it became our family's tradition every year at Thanksgiving and sometimes even at Christmas to gather around the table and sing, Be Present at Our Table, Lord. This hymn was published in 1741 by a Calvinist Methodist, a friend of George Whitfield by the name of John Sinek. He wrote it, obviously not about Thanksgiving, but he wrote it for celebrating, thanks, celebrating excuse me, the Lord's table in the context of a church. Let me read to you the lyrics. Be present at our table, Lord, be here and everywhere adored. Thy mercies bless and grant that we may feast in paradise with thee. We thank thee, Lord, for this our food, for life and health and every good. By thine own hand may we be fed. Give us each day our daily bread. We thank thee, Lord, for this our good, but more because of Jesus' blood. Let manna to our souls be given, the bread of life sent down from heaven. The Lord's table, communion, as it's often called, for 2,000 years has been an integral part, special time of fellowship and spiritual significance for the people of God. Protestant Christians have differed a little bit. Maybe you've read a little bit about this. Even in the time of the Reformation, Luther held to a position sometimes called consubstantiation. He felt the corporeal, or we would say actual presence of Christ, was in the bread and the cup. Others, like John Calvin, took a more mystical view, the mystical view, which says, though the bread and wine are symbols, spiritual presence of Christ is, in a spiritual way, there among us. It was invoked, resulting in a spiritual union, a, a spiritual happening. Something happened that was very special in the Lord's table. And then there was a view of Ulrich Zwingli, a, a Swissman, which is often called the memorial view. King off those words, do this in remembrance of me. He taught that though nothing mystical or spiritual actually took place, he did feel that it was intensified part of worship as we proclaim the gospel in memoriam. Which view do I take? Well, I don't agree with Luther. That's a little too close to transubstantiation for me. It seems a little bit uh, touching on the monophysite heresy, which sort of conflates the human and divine nature of Jesus. I do believe it is both memorial and mystical. I agree with Zwingli. Yes, it is intended in many ways to be like a joyous memorial, like, almost like a memorial service. It's a celebration of Christ's life, but more importantly, His atoning death. And we do this until He 
comes again. So I agree with Zwingli that it is a memorial, a, a symbol of spiritual truth. But I also agree, agree with Calvin in that I believe something special and spiritual happens when we gather together and celebrate the Lord's table. This will be very similar to baptism. Yes, it's a symbol. Yes, it symbolizes and memorializes something spiritual, something important, and something that has already taken place. I do believe something else happens in baptism as well. I think the second ordinance is similar. I think the Lord's table, it does memorialize something, but at the same time, something very special happens. It is a symbol, yes, but it is also more than a symbol. Again, sort of thinking of that first ordinance, thinking of, of baptism, it is a symbol, it's a memorial of something that's already taken place. When you think about it, if someone were to die in a tragic car accident on their way to baptism, they would go straight to heaven. They would spend their eternity in heaven with God because they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They've believed with a repentant faith in Christ, and they've decided to follow after Christ even though they had not yet been baptized. And so when you're baptized, indeed, you symbolize something that's taken place in your heart. You've died to your old way. You've been risen again. You're spiritually alive with Christ. But I believe in baptism, something spiritual happens. Paul said, when you're baptized, you are baptized into Christ Jesus. That is to say, in baptism, you forge a spiritual bond with all baptized believers going all the way back even to Jesus Christ Himself. By that physical act, you, you enter spiritually into communion, into a family. And this is realized on a local context when you enter into a church family. In fact, most denominations, almost all denominations actually, because of this, require baptism to be a member of the church. And this applies not just to us Baptists, but even those who baptize infants and sprinkle and do it a little bit differently. Most churches, most denominations, is, it's a requirement to be baptized in order to be a member of the church. Now, you might ask at this point, can there be people, are there Christians who are believers who yet because they're not baptized have not yet entered spiritually into the church? The answer is yes, and I would say positively and negatively. Positively, there is grace. There is certainly grace for those people like deathbed conversions. You think about the criminal on the cross, there is certainly grace for people like that, and though they had not come to that point where they're spiritually entering into that communion, they're still part of God's people. There are also times when people are believers, they're Christians, they they still have to work things out in their minds and in their hearts, and maybe there's some time between the time of, of salvation and baptism, and they're working through those things, positively moving in submission to the things of God. And sometimes there's just time to be considered. I, I always think about uh, expediency. You think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This, this man had accepted Christ, and uh, they're by some water, and he says essentially in the old King James, what preventeth me from being baptized? And uh, they, he baptizes him there. However, I always think, well, what would happen if there wasn't any water there? Well, they would just wait a little bit, and then he'd be baptized when they found some water. So sometimes, they're just because of expedience, because of schedules, there's, not, there's a little gap between salvation and baptism, this introduction or this communion that is established. 
Negatively, though, I suppose theoretically a person could have been genuinely saved, but be in a state really of resistance, resisting baptism. But I would say this is a very dangerous place to be. If, if that's you, if you're someone who believes themselves to be a Christian, you've received Christ, you've repented of your sin, you've followed after Jesus, but you're still resisting baptism, I would say this is a very dangerous place to be. You're digging your heels in and saying, essentially, no, Jesus, I accept you, but I reject your command to be baptized. And just incidentally, just remember this phrase, no, Lord, is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. That's not the attitude of a person of faith, a true believer. And so you're, in a sense, uh, very similar to someone who has been excommunicated. You're not in communication. There's no spiritual communion within the church, with the church, with the people of God, and that's a dangerous place to be. There's no spiritual union, so there's no encouragement, no accountability, no true fellowship, and so there's no assurance of your salvation. You don't even really know if you're unified with Christ or not. No one can truly vouch for you, encourage you, discipline you, disciple you, keep you accountable. If you believe in Christ, but you reject His very first command after you believe, which is to be baptized, you ought to have some doubt whether or not your faith is genuine. Why am I talking about baptism? If the ordinance of baptism creates spiritual union with the body of Christ, the Lord's table establishes it. It makes that union real. Let me use this season as an illustration. You may be in a family by by blood. You were born into some sort of family, part of a family. That's great. Gets you in, creates that union, is part of that union. But real family, the special moment comes when you're together, when you're eating and celebrating and singing and laughing, living together, fellowshipping together. That's when something truly special happens, life together. So what happens at the Lord's table certainly is memorial, but it's also the realization of our spiritual communion. We are a family not just by symbol. We are family not just by a technical reality. We're a family because we fellowship and we celebrate together and we live together and we eat together. We have this special spiritual moment where we are unified. This happens all in the Lord's table. That is why when there was division in the church at Corinth. There was unconfessed sin in the church, and it actually was related to the ordinance of the Lord's table. They were segregated. Some people were excluding others from their Lord's table, and there were multiple Lord's tables happening in the church. They violated the meaning and the whole reason of the Lord's Table. The reason we fellowship together is because we are repentant. We're brought to union together in Jesus by His crucifixion, His body, His blood, and they're, they're violating that meaning by basically using the Lord's table as a way to sin against one another. And they violated the moment of the Lord's table, and that is to, to bring us together, to, to create this spiritual unification together. We're coming together. We have this spiritual moment together. this communion with one another around the table of fellowship. And so they're in violation of this. This is why Paul said, essentially, this is why God is disciplining you with sickness, even with death. This is an extreme 
horrifying, even blasphemous violation. The whole reason that this celebration exists is because He's brought you together by His blood through this ceremony. God establishes this union, but you have used this, this very ritual to divide and to sin. Let me read out of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is why I think it's more than just a symbol. There's spiritual significance that's happening at the table. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body... In other words, without considering this moment of us gathering together and unifying and being in unity here under Christ, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is my, why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What a dire thing that was happening there in Corinth. So when we take the Lord's table... We don't merely reflect on the symbol of bread and cup. Sometimes I put the emphasis on that, and probably wrongly. I haven't emphasized the other side of it, not just the symbol, the memorial, but also the deep spiritual moment that it's providing us. We should relish and cherish and savor what God is doing in that moment and bringing us all together. We cherish this moment like a, like a mother would at Thanksgiving, look over, looking over the table of her children and her family all there gathered and laughing and fellowshipping. We, we look at our family. We think about being together. We're, we've been brought together by the blood of Christ. And we cherish this moment when we take the Lord's table. Well, this whole idea, this notion of this symbolic ceremony establishing spiritual unity among us, unity among the people of God. It is not new. It goes back 2,000 years, and it was not even new with Christ. It actually preceded Christ in the ceremony of Passover. It goes all the way back to the Old Covenant when the people of God were being formed as a nation of Israel. You probably know the story, but in order to understand this passage, we need to just remind ourselves of Passover and what Jesus and His disciples were doing that day and where their minds would have been and the thoughts that they would have had. So let me just be brief and remind you of what was going on here as we read this text in Matthew. The nation of Israel was originally, of course, a, a family over more than 400 years of enslavement. God blessed them in terms of uh, uh, generation. They grew and grew and grew to hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of Hebrews there in Egypt. Of course, God wanted to free them from that slavery and wanted them to go back and inherit the land that He had promised to Abraham. But the Pharaoh of Egypt would not let them go. He liked free labor. He wanted the people of Israel to stay there and work for Him. And so God put pressure through Moses upon Pharaoh to let them go by sending a series of plagues. 
And what is notable about the first nine plagues is that because of God's kindness to His people, not because of anything they'd done or any sort of accomplishment, but simply because of God's kindness to them, the first nine plagues did not bother or did not impact much the people of Israel. What is also notable is that those nine plagues did not convince Pharaoh to let them go. It only hardened his heart. The tenth plague, which is essentially death, was the opposite in both ways. Death was a threat for everyone, Jew or Egyptian or anyone else living there. Why? Because in terms of sin, in terms of needing salvation, the Jews were no different than any Gentile. They needed a Savior. They needed atonement for their sin. This had been clear from the very beginning. The wages of sin is death. And death was coming for all unless there was provision of an atoning lamb. Well, and that's what God did. He told the people of Israel if they sacrificed a lamb, put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over them. And God then would free them from the Egyptians. And that's exactly what happened. That's the story of God's chosen people living in the bondage and under sin and under bondage and then graciously provided blood atonement and then being freed to go back to their promised land. That's really the theme of the whole Old Testament. God wanted this message to remain central and true among them because that's central to the whole Old Testament. The whole message of the Old Testament is that man is in bondage and in sin and they need atonement God provides that atonement so that people can be free and live in His kingdom. God wanted this message to remain the central truth of their union with Him and with one another. And so after they were liberated from the Egyptians, God, in His covenant with Moses, established Pesach, or what we know as Passover. Now, there's a lot involved in Passover. It's not just one day. It's not just one meal. We could spend a month of Sundays just going through all the Hebrew traditions and all the stories of Passover. We're not going to do that. But back in our study here in Matthew uh, 26, verse 17, it says, When the first day of unleavened bread, and it says in verse 19, they prepared Passover. It's sort of setting up this narrative. These, these men would have understood that story. They would have understood that every year... They memorialized and they actualized union with one another and with their God. This, this would be something very important for the people of Israel. So they were preparing Passover. If you're taking notes, that's really what verses 17, 18, and 19 broadly describes for us. Number one, preparations for Passover. They were making preparations to, to have this meal this meal that binds them together, this meal that demonstrates their need as, as humans for an atoning lamb, their need for unity under that atoning lamb and community under that atoning lamb. So it was Thursday, sometime on that, that day, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, what are we going to do about Passover? Where are we going to celebrate it? That was their specific question. Where are we going to celebrate Passover? And Jesus told them, verse 18, that there was someone, a man, with a room. Now, we don't know if Jesus made these preparations earlier. Maybe he had 
said something. We really don't know the backstory on this. It just tells us what happened. Jesus tells them there's someone go to him and he has a room for us. Mark tells us it was an upper room, meaning it was probably on the second floor of the home. Now, we could spend a lot of time trying to harmonize all the different gospel accounts, uh, the dates and the slaughter of lambs and when things were happening and how the, Gen uh, the Galileans did it a little bit differently than the people from Judea and how some of the priests would allow them to sacrifice lambs at different times because there would be too many sacrifices. We're not going to spend all the time this morning doing that. There's a lot of sermons out there and commentaries that you can read to study that if that interests you. We're just going to follow things as it happened here. It's Thursday evening. They go to this upper room, and there they will sit around a, a U-shaped table, which had, was probably a very low table and would have cushions around it, and they would, they would celebrate Passover around this table. The, the leader, usually the father, in this case it would be Jesus, would sit at the head of the table, and everyone would sit around this U-shaped table. And then they would have the Passover meal. What would the Passover meal consist of? Well, first of all, it was an initial drink, a drink of wine from a cup, and this was to represent God's blessing. The father would hold the cup high and would announce God's blessing, and they would partake of this cup to get things started. After drinking this cup, this cup of blessing, they would go and ceremoniously wash their hands. This is to show that they come to God pure, they come to God having looked at their own hearts, confessed their sin. Again, this will remind us of what we do during the Lord's table. They're coming to God. They're coming to one another to fellowship in purity of heart. They're coming because God has made them pure and because they desire to be pure before God, and they would wash their hands. It is likely in this time... Uh, that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. You remember some of the other accounts. This is when the disciples began to debate, that old debate that they got dragged into once in a while about ranking in the kingdom. Who's going to be ranked the highest? And Jesus rebuked them, really, I think, embarrassed them about their pride, and they, He began to be a servant by washing their feet. So after this washing, they would then take some bitter herbs and some oil, and they would mix this into a bowl. This sauce was called caroset. Then they would dip the bread into it. So first the cup, then the washing, then their bitter herbs and dipping the bread in a ceremonious way, one at a time, they would dip the bread into the bitter herbs. Then the father, or the head of the table, Jesus in this case, would lift a second ceremonial cup. And at this point, the Father would remind the people of what I just told you about, the story of Israel and being freed from the Egyptians, saved by God, the meaning of the Passover meal. They would sing a Hallel, a hymn, a song, and at that point they would bring out the lamb whose blood was on the doorpost, and then the Father would dip the bread into the carol set again, and this was a sign that, that the meal could officially start. They'd, everything was sort of a process, sort of a ceremony to that point, and once this hymn was sung and the Father 
would dip the bread again, it was a sign that people could begin to eat. And other people would reach in and start to dip the bread into the oily, herby uh, thing, and then they would begin to eat the lamb. Well, it was in this little ceremony, or I guess I suppose right after the official ceremony, that we find Judas officially and finally falling from fellowship. That's number two if you're taking notes, falling from fellowship. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with, at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, so we get the idea that the, the official part of the ceremony had passed, now we're at the point where people are eating, and they're dining, and they're dipping their bread, and they're eating the lamb. Some of you are getting kind of hungry right now, I know I am. As they're doing this, Jesus says, verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So the way I read it, Passover has been observed, and this is the last Passover. And they began eating. Didn't have forks and spoons back then. Just used their hands, dipped their bread in the oil, ate the lamb. And Jesus, as they were eating, shocked them all by announcing during the meal, One of you will betray me. Now, it's possible everyone around that table was feeling the sting of Jesus' earlier rebuke. So they all felt a little guilty, a little embarrassed, a little humiliated, and so they all began to ask, Is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? There's no way we can clearly know what happened here, not with precision. You'll find different interpretations, different preachers, different commentators. But I like to take, take Matthew's account at face value. And the face value account is that they were all asking, Lord, is it me? Is it me? And they're, they're kind of eating, and maybe some of them sort of stopped eating and looked up. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And Jesus and Judas both simultaneously reached their hands with their bread to, to dip it into the bowl. And that's when Jesus said these words, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He and Judas, their arms outstretched, the bread was both in the bowl. I imagine at that moment the whole room fell silent. Jesus looked at Judas with a stern, unflinching gaze, made sure Judas fully understood the implication of his sin. He said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. In other words, you haven't changed the sovereign plan of God one bit. Everything is going as planned. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Your life is ruined. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, maybe his hand was still outreached. Maybe he pulled it back suddenly, afraid. He said, is it I, Rabbi? 
And Jesus said to him, you have said so. At this point, we know from the other Gospels that Judas jumped up. John tells us this is when, as I said earlier, this is when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. In other words, get out of here. Go do what you've planned to do. Judas ran off. He was essentially expelled from that fellowship. It makes sense, doesn't it? If the purpose of Passover and then later the Lord's table was to, to find union and fellowship and communion by the fact that God had graciously saved you, that you have come into submission under the blood of Christ, under the, the blood of the Lamb, it makes sense that the one who, who blasphemously violated that, blasphemy denied that and betrayed Jesus would be expelled from that fellowship. And so that's what happened. Well, now that the false disciple is gone, Jesus now would establish the new covenant, the lasting covenant, the permanent eternal union and communion established not by the blood of many lambs, but the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And so that's what Jesus does. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus is introducing a new ceremony. He prays, He blesses it, He broke the bread, He gave it to the disciples, take, eat, this is my body, and He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them. So, I believe when it says He blessed the bread and He gave thanks, we know from some other passages, parallel passages, that when we ask blessing upon food, it is not simply to ask blessing, it is also in giving thanks. In fact, sometimes you'll see in one gospel it'll say that Jesus blessed something, and other gospels say He gave thanks. I think it's the same thing. He blesses it and gives thanks. It's the same thing. He prays over the bread, He prayed over the bread, and then He prayed over the cup. He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Number three, and we'll be finished and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Communion through covenant. In the Old Testament, after the people of Israel were freed saved out of Egypt. Moses established the basis of their law, the Ten Commandments. And after the tabernacle was built, after some of the rascals, the rebellious people, the deniers had been dealt with, all of the people gathered around the tabernacle as Moses went in to sacrifice and to speak to God and establish the covenant. Moses does this, and then he comes out. Let me read to you what happened after Moses comes out. Moses, verse 3, Moses came out. This is of, uh, I believe, Exodus 27. Moses came out and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
And so Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. You understand this was a ceremonious throw. It's not like he could cover them in blood. It was more of a, he just threw the blood in the air, and it was essentially the blood covering them. He threw the blood on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I want you to see this picture in your mind. In our vernacular, in our language, we would call this revival. God had spoken. God had softened through great discipline and hardship. God had softened the hearts of the people. God had established His covenant with them, saving them. And when Moses came out and announced the Word of God, the people began to cheer a cheer of obedience, shouting, rejoicing, began to erupt. And you can imagine Moses didn't have the vocal capacity to address several million people all at once. So you can imagine what Moses said was then carried out to the people as they gathered around the tabernacle and the cheering began to grow louder and louder and it began to spread bigger and bigger and bigger until by the end millions of people began shouting and celebrating, declaring their obedience and commitment to one another and to God. There are now a unified people within the covenant that God had so graciously provided by the blood. The communion, the unity of a people, the joy about what God had done by the blood of the Lamb, this special moment of rejoicing and, and submission to God... What an important, amazing, beautiful moment. Something spiritual had taken a place in the lives and the hearts of the people of God. And Moses announces, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Well, the next time we hear that language, the blood of the covenant is right here in Matthew chapter 26, and Jesus says it. Jesus stood up. His ministry was complete. After those men were chosen, after all His validating miracles, after all His flawless, authoritative preaching, after they were purified, after Judas was expelled, Jesus stands up and says, Take, eat, this is my body. Drink all of it. This is my blood of the covenant. There's no question anymore. Not only was Jesus God, but He had come to offer Himself His blood. This is my blood of the covenant. His blood to purify us, to unify us, to establish communion. And it is by that covenant that we are brought into that communion. Well, what we have here 
here in Matthew 26 is the very first time the Lord's table occurred. It's a symbol, yes, it's a memorial of what Christ would do, what Christ would accomplish on our behalf, the sacrificial lamb laying down his life, spilling his blood for his sheep. But we also going to be certain that as we take this bread and cup, there's a unique, reviving, spiritual moment, a communion that is being established by the Spirit in our hearts through this new covenant. This communion is with one another and is with our God. And so let's thank the Lord for that communion right now. Father, we do thank you for what you've provided in the Lord's table. What a beautiful picture that takes us all the way back to that original old covenant. Let it being replaced with a better covenant, a new covenant that brings all of us here, all the way across the world, the other side of the world, all of us from all these different backgrounds and ethnicities, we all come to you by the blood of the Lamb. What a very important and special moment that we get to enjoy. Lord, you do something here as we celebrate, as we cherish this moment, as we're together, moving our hearts, a desire to be unified. Lord, inspire us even to look at our own, own hearts about our relationships with others. Help us to inspect our lives. Help us to understand what Christ has done. Lord, for those who may not know you, help them understand what Christ has established because the wages of sin is indeed death and He laid down His life, the Lamb of God. And Lord, give them the faith and repentance they need to come to You. Lord, I pray that we will always celebrate this time with great inner reflection, with reflection looking back as a memorial to what Christ accomplished, the body and blood. May we not squander this moment, but celebrate it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.